Knowing Nature, a show all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm Victor. And I'm Annabeth. And we are going to be your hosts. So in this episode, we're going to be talking a bit about getting started in environmental education, how we got started in environmental education. Our environmental first steps, as it were. Yep. And to frame our discussion, we're going to use a paper uh, by Louise Chawla out of the University of Cincinnati, which just gives a framework for understanding the association between positive experiences in nature as a child with pro-environmental behaviors as an adult. Uh, But first off, I guess, uh, a bit about us. Who are we? Who are we? So Annabeth. Who are you? Who am I? Well, I I work currently as a science educator. Um, I but before that, I studied zoology, so I have an honours degree in zoology. Before that, for going back even further though, I'm originally from Ireland. I lived very, very deep, deep sort of countryside growing up, surrounded by nature. The loudest things outside were probably birds that woke you up in the morning, or foxes and badgers at night, which is quite nice. So I kind of grew up already having a bit of a connection with the outside. We enjoyed holidays to the beach and things like that. Um, And I kind of grew up especially on a farm, a working farm at that time as well. So I was no stranger um, to getting kind of dirty outside in the mud and coming back and, you know, scrapes on the knees and things like that, but not phasing me. Um, I would definitely say that all, we'll probably get into that a bit later, but yeah, definitely say a lot of that has kind of motivated me to who I am as a, I say, a young, young woman. And you had sheep as well, didn't you? Oh, lots of sheep. Lots of sheep. Are they your favourite farm animal? Oh, you know, I do love lambs They're because they're adorable. But actually, my favourite farm animal were the pigs that we used to have because pigs are piglets are maybe one of the most adorable things in the world. And pigs are crazy smart. I was going to say, pigs are quite intelligent as well, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I used to teach them to roll over with Cheerios. Pigs really like Cheerios, FYI. There you go. There's your tip for the day. Right. What about you? Yours is a bit probably a little bit more Mine's exotic. Mine's quite different because yeah. I'm from Canada and from Toronto, which is <gasps> what? Canada? Never the that. <laughs> biggest city in Canada. So I grew up in a city, but was I'm kind of a city boy, but kind of not a city boy as well. But what else? Uh, I've got a teaching background, actually. So I went to school for sociology and anthropology, but... Even in my undergrad, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. So I was working on a teaching degree at the same time. Multitasking, Uh, nice. Multitasking, yeah. Came over here to the UK where I briefly dabbled in classroom teaching, knowing that I did not really want to do classroom teaching. I wanted to be restrained by the four walls. Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, I'd also been working at at a museum back in Canada for quite some time. And I knew that that was the kind of education I wanted to do. Uh, So came here to the UK, did a tiny bit of classroom teaching and then left. uh, I did some volunteering at the Museum of London for a little while, taught at an outdoor education kind of nature reserve for many years. Yeah. So now I'm also a science educator. Kind of, yeah. So kind of similar, but kind of different as well. Like I did obviously little bits in Canada um, at aquariums and things like that and worked in zoos in environment, in sort of education or science education, environmental education. But yeah, I think it was we're both sort of have our own inspirations taken from the outside and the natural world that we we're now eager to translate and educate and inspire other people through. I kind of want people to be as excited about the outdoors as I am. And then I don't really understand when they're not. So this is yeah, kind of similar then both on those pages. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's really, I just think it's really important because mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's a lot of us on the planet now. Humans have a really big impact. Mm-hmm. So it's really important now that as we live our lives, we think about how we're impacting the planet so that we can live know, our best possible life, both for us 
and Earth, I think. Absolutely. And so that there's, you know, a lovely planet for children, grandchildren, great grandchildren Mm -hmm. to be living in. And I think people are beginning to get a bit more aware. Like there is, it's not that it's a world full of idiots. There's a lot out there, but I think we are getting a bit more aware. It's just, it's interesting to see what particular features gets people excited and gets people enthused about the environment. So that brings us to the paper here. Uh, mm-hmm. So the paper again is by Louise Chollett's titled uh, Childhood Experiences Associated with Care for the Natural World. And what the paper does is it looks at results of some other work that's been done in, uh, I believe it's Kentucky. And Norway. And Norway. Mm-hmm. And it looks at interviews with people involved in conservation uh, and the outdoors and sustainability. And it asks them why they got into that field. If they, It asks them what motivated them to take that direction in their lives. And most of them, if not all of them, always link it back to an experience or experiences during childhood or a positive role model when they were a child that kind of pushed them to enjoy the outdoors and the natural world. So I think it's quite interesting. I think you don't fully realise that it might be the experiences you learn as a child. But when we start chatting about it and having a discussion, then I sort of link back, oh yeah, it, being outside when I was younger is probably a huge reason for why I care so much about the environment now. Absolutely. So the what it is, those early childhood experiences means that you kind of, the children develop an attachment to a particular place. And then as they go through school, as they grow up, they learn more about the world around them and the issues facing it. And so their view kind of broadens. So when they think about threats to forests around the world from, say, development, if they've got a really positive attachment with a, a forest or some woods that they used to spend time in as a child, then they kind of draw on those memories of, you know, having really positive experiences in that kind of environment. And then when they're an adult, they can generalize it out into the world. So they tend to care more about protecting those kinds of environments. Do you have any like memories like that or something, experiences like that, that this sort of resonates with you then as well? Can you Pick, for instance, an environment or a situation when you were a child that you can pinpoint as one of the many things that have motivated you to be an environmental educator now. Yeah, I remember a lot as a kid trips to there was a, my local park had a massive pond in it. Mm. And I remember just sort of rambling around the edge of that pond, exploring it. Yeah, because obviously as like a city boy, it's kind of a bit more, no offense, no offense, take no hope. Uh, but yeah, obviously as a city boy, like you, your sort of connection to being like in the green spaces was kind of maybe more limited than mine, but maybe that meant that you appreciated it more because you maybe got access to it a lot less. Does that make sense? I think so. And it was just uh, because it was nearby, it meant that I could spend a lot more time Mm -hmm. around it. So we would spend, you know, half a day on the weekend and it would just be me roaming around this pond, having a look at what's there. Where's the frogs? There were turtles that moved into the ponds as well. I forgot it was Canada and I was like, turtles in a pond? What? Turtles in a pond. Yeah. And although it may have been someone's pet turtle, (laughs) that's possible as well. That they sort of released into the pond, which is not something that you should do. Invasive species are bad guys. It is not a good scene. But there was that, and uh, there were also fishing trips that I went on with my dad. Uh, and again, those with those fishing trips, though, so, you know, fishing trips, they they can be quite boring. 
They're not really a, an adrenaline-filled sport, There's are they? It's not really much going on with waiting. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of so sitting around. how did my dad cope with waiting? Well, he took naps. <laughs> but how I, old were you at this? This was probably uh, probably from starting at six, eight, uh, somewhere around there. Back when the days where a nap was maybe the worst thing a child yeah, would have I to do. Yeah, I wanted to do stuff. Yeah. So he would take a nap and I would, again, just go roaming around and exploring And in particular, I remember one day when I was exploring around the edge of this, um, I think it was a lake, and I remember finding this little opening, because it's um, in Canada, we get lots of woods that come right up to the water. So we're sort of wandering through, there's a little gap there, there was a rock that was sort of poking out of the water. I remember sitting down on the rock, looking over into the water, and in the water, sitting on the rock, looking up at me, was this little fish. I remember making eye contact with this little fish, and then... Down, down it went, swam off down into the depths of, of this little pond. The fish saw you and you saw the fish. Yeah, and I just remember, I don't know, there was something about just meeting the fish in that way, you know. Here we were sort of sharing the same space together. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a moment that stuck with me. I can't can't pinpoint what it is about that moment, but it just really stuck with me. Yeah, I'm like, I'm kind of similar then. So obviously... We've already mentioned that my background is a little bit, a little bit different growing up on a farm, kind of surrounded by green spaces everywhere. But one of the things I can, a moment I can really, really clearly remember would be um, my dad used to take my sister and I rock pooling quite a lot. So you get your little nets, your little buckets and you go out to the beach and look around the rock pools and try and see what you can find and what, because sometimes you might find some things. Generally, I always enjoyed poking the anemones. I always find that quite Enjoyable, which it's yes. Those poor enemies. Those poor enemies. Looking back now, I sort of shiver at it, but yes, I I was very hands on, and I like I like to touch things when That's I was little. You do as a kid. And so yeah, it's you all, want to see it do something exactly tactile thing. I want to know what it does. It's just stuck in the rock. When I poke it, looks like a plant. It looks like a plant, but it's not a plant. Yeah, it's a world of discovery when you're a child. But one of the things I can definitely remember is finding my first hermit crab and being blown away by this tiny, tiny, like it was really, really small crab in this little pool. And I got him in his little net, picked him up and held him in my hand. And I just remember that moment just being totally blown away and how thrilled my dad was that I found a tiny crab in an environment where he was supposed to be. Obviously, I put him back and I'll be happy to know. Um, But that moment, I just remember being just amazed that this is, I'm a living thing and this tiny little crab's a living thing too. And again, we're both, you know, sharing sharing this world together, but in very different circumstances. It's, yeah, and that was, I was probably about five or six then. So rock pulling, those kind of memories of being taken by my dad to another sort of environment and enjoying it and exploring it, my own pace and the excitement I got from then. And even my sister, she loved it as well. Do you still like the seaside then? Oh, the seaside's probably, for me, even though I grew up sort of land, not landlocked, but in a far, on a farm, actually, the ocean for me is what brings back my most positive memories. And that's the thing. I have a beach back home that I would go to quite a lot. But now the ocean is what gives me my most, like, sort of any sort of positivity. I feel just anywhere I'm around, if I can get to the beach, that's what I kind of miss the most, actually being able, accessibility to beaches. But any the ocean is just, I think I have fondness. It's the main one for me. And you mentioned your dad as well. So that's the second um, feature that is described in the article is that this positive interactions with the environment, a really important factor in that is having an an adult in your life or just someone else in your life when you're a child who shows you that nature and the outdoors is an interesting place. Mm-hmm. It's a positive place to be. Okay. It's in, not going to hurt yeah, you. An environmental role model in a way. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who showed interest in the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would never say that, obviously, I've my 
life has gone in a much more environmentalist direction than maybe my parents and my brother and sister and things like that. But they definitely had their own huge roles to play as role models to me for enjoying the environment, like encouraging me to my brother and I would climb trees all day and get covered in mud and sticks and build forts. And yeah, dad taking me to the beach and mum rescuing a plethora of injured animals, um, like hedgehogs and bats and things like that. And me just being amazed by a bat's wing or hedgehog spikes and things like that. Did you guys take those home and like nurse them back to Yeah, we nursed them. We had a, quite a few actually bats. They all got called gizmo. After the Gremlin films, yeah. Nice, Every nice. single one. It wasn't even that there was Gizmo 1, Gizmo 2, just all every gizmo. bat was Gizmo. Bats are Gizmo. Bats are always Gizmo. Okay. But yeah, we had a few bats that had little damaged wings. So I got, we've kind of rescued a good few of them. I remember this then got, inspired me to, this is probably when I was seven or eight, inspired me to go out and purchase. I remember saving up my, all my, my pocket money to go and purchase a huge animal encyclopedia because I wanted to know what species of bat we'd find. So that like, yeah, that was that was a really, really big moment. And then lots of hedgehogs, saved a lot of hedgehogs. I, we had pet dogs and they would find the hedgehogs, but then immediately not know what to do with these spiky balls of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's like those different people played like different roles. So mother would like the kind of having the empathy for animals. Dad was there to help the bay, kind of inspire me to explore the outdoors. And yeah, probably my brother was there to sort of encourage me to not be scared of the outdoors. So I think it's like each three is like a three pinpoint thing and adding them all up together, I think is what put me here in this place now as such an advocate, I think, for the environment and the natural world. But what about you? Any role models that you can pick on? You would say yes, for sure. So for me, it was probably mostly my teachers. I had um, one teacher in particular. I had her in, oh no, I think it was just grade one and grade three. But the thing that this teacher did was she had us raise ducklings in the class. Oh, no, that's yeah. adorable. So my school and the teachers that I had in elementary school, they did a lot of science and sort of nature education. And raising ducklings was like that's awesome. highlight of the year. I think the closest thing I got to that was growing watercress out of a potato. <laughs> also exciting. Very similar, very, so you, very similar. You planted the watercress in a potato. And then you grew it out of a potato. Or something. I just remember watercress growing out of a potato. That's very strange. Um, Maybe it was a hollowed out potato. Uh, No, Ireland, big on potatoes. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, so ducklings. And that was just, it was an amazing experience because she would get them in as eggs and then had an incubator. So they were there incubating in the classroom for a couple weeks. Um, We would candle them so you could see the little developing ducklings inside the eggs. Wow, what an amazing thing to witness as well. It's like like really young. Yeah. And such a way to like we we really cared about those ducklings. You know, they were our classrooms ducklings. Did you name them? Uh we did, yeah, yeah. So I remember because so I had her twice. I was super lucky. So I got to raise we did ducklings twice with her. That was amazing. Uh, but I remember one year there was a duckling that uh, as was hatching, was really, really struggling to get out of the shell. It was a really weak duckling. And when it came out, it like did not look well. We were really worried about it. But uh, my teacher sort of nursed it, took special care of it. It lived in the incubator just a little bit longer than oh. the other ducks. Um, so that one, I remember it got a green dot on its head so we could tell them apart. And it was named Lucky because it was lucky that it made it. It kind of reminds me of when you were saying about the ducks hatching out of the eggs and the one that needed a little bit of help of that dinosaur hatching scene in Jurassic Park. 
That's it. Exactly like that, only with ducks. With ducks. Arguably the best of all poultry. Yeah, they're not going to bite your <laughs> finger off. No. And they can't peck your eyes out. They've got nice child-safe rounded beaks. Yes, they do. That's the, it's like child scissors. <laughs> yeah, child scissors. Yeah, the children most child-friendly of all the birds, probably. Probably. And then what happened when they reached full duckhood? So they stayed with us after hatching for probably maybe three weeks or so. And our teacher told us that she had a farmer friend and the ducks went and lived on the farm and kind of left it at that. Duck spring rolls, guys, for lunch today. Mm, yeah. <laughs> no, mm, that, yeah. I, they went to the farm. We'll believe they, they went, they went to, to the farm. farm. Yeah. What happened on that farm? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I don't, I don't need to ask. I can, I can guess I don't want to know. I don't. Yeah. That's. It's just one of those mysteries of childhood. Mm-hmm. The you little. Know? Oh. What happened well, to that's that? That's incredible. What happened to those ducklings? We'll never know. Never know. <laughs> um. But yeah. So you do say raising those ducks. That was kind of like it was both a comforting experience, but also like a really exploratory one as well. As for a kid to see from egg to hatching to release, I guess in a way, like that's quite. It was quite. I don't know. It did. It's a lot of empathy for these these little creatures that you know they depended on us for everything right like water food you know protection from things they were, they were safe in our classroom but you know we protected them against the other kids from the other classes like no well, these are our ducklings <laughs> so yeah it's just this real care and then there there was definitely that lots of support from teachers for all the things i did i was a big bug collector i mm. started my group of friends we for a while were you know keeping all kinds of bugs in jars i was one of those kids i was one of the kids that collected snails and brought them inside in which is an environment they probably don't want to live in and i kept in my room Ooh. lots of snails i wanted to hold snail races and i would oh, this is where it gets i used to paint their shells with nail polish <laughs> that's not that bad not actually. that bad well, it's okay yeah. for them yeah um that's actually something that scientists will do they'll mark snails shells well i've done it before with hermit crabs actually for one of my same um, thing. undergrad projects catch yeah. and release isn't it mm-hmm. yep so you catch them paint their shells and see how far they go put them back yeah see yeah. how far they go and that can give you uh which is a fun activity to do for kids so it sounds like maybe actually we should move on to the next bit so how if you are a teacher out there an outdoor educator or a parent some ideas for things you can do with kids model, in I the think, outdoors yeah. yeah and catching and releasing so and and uh, marking in somewhere mm-hmm. is uh, is a good way of doing that, I think, anyways. And it's uh, used by scientists as well. So particularly with small creatures where you can't catch all of them. So I'm thinking things like snails, where you're definitely going to miss some hermit crabs as well. Mm-hmm. What they'll do is you'll pick an area, pick an amount of time, you collect as many of the things as you can in that time, mark the shells in some way, nail polish is mm-hmm. uh, just like a little dot. Don't, a little go, dot. don't go full manicure. On that <laughs> no. Uh, then they release them. And then a little while later, maybe a week or two, you go back, same area, same amount of time, catch as many as you can, count how many of the marked ones you've recaught. And that can give you a sense of how many there are in that area, mm-hmm. which is why it's so good for animals that you can't catch all of them. Exactly. I think as well, like, um, so moving on, like from catching and release to other things as well. I, one of the things I used to do with my parents was build hedgehog homes in the garden. 
just like little sticks and tubes and things for them to hide. I don't know if the hedgehogs ever use them, but I think it definitely garners and nurtures that sort of feeling. Like you said, empathy. I think empathy is the main thing that we kind of need to root first in children. Absolutely. Yeah. I made small animal homes and with mm-hmm. just sort of household scraps, because mm-hmm. uh, we had a compost heap in our garden and I really wanted something to live in a compost heap. So I took a cardboard box, cut a little hole in it to be the door. I made little rooms in it with cardboard. <laughs> and buried it in the compost heap, you know, with a little, the door peeking out so that some, something could move in. Um, so that's a Dale compost. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and at that point, I knew what composting was, so I used all compostable ingredients, you know, it was just cardboard box. That's wonderful. I like that. Lots of, I think, yeah, the idea of building like mini beast hotels and bee hotels, um, really, really easy things to do, really fun things to do as families or schools. And then it kind of leads on to that sort of educating them about why it's important to build these things. Like our bees, everyone knows the bees are in trouble. Bees are important. Having little hotels for them to hibernate in the winter. Because most most species of bee hibernate apart from the honeybee? Nope. Honeybees, well, they don't properly hibernate. They're still active inside the hives. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, well, there's a lot of them where they only do the one generation a year and then the bees that come out the next year are actually a different generation, so they don't hibernate. Mm Not properly, they're developing as larvae or pupae. Mm-hmm. But giving like them somewhere to rest in the winter. I think the big issue, obviously, with like current gardens and things, if we want to, we want all nice and clean, we want all perfectly manicured with no no room for wildness. Wildness, you can't be here. But actually, keeping the rotting wood and things like that, and like having the compost heaps and having it with a little with some wildness thrown in is great. And I think that's a great thing to do as a family, or if in your green spaces at school as well. With your class, I think that's a really, really easy and kind of really fun thing to do. Yeah. And I think finding a wild place and letting kids explore it is a really good one. And by explore, I just mean let them do mm-hmm. whatever, totally freeform. Just, don't be scared. Yeah. Gonna, don't be afraid of yeah. it. Let them explore the environment and mm-hmm. they will find things that interest them. So if you're a bit stuck on what to do, sometimes all you need to do is bring the kids out to the place and they will find something to do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to keep an eye on them, get involved, mm-hmm. you know, follow their lead. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, I think the narratives that I've seen kids create when they're outside, for instance, I think I used to do den building with groups of kids. And honestly, you just give them a pile of sticks and some leaves and then they've created a whole community in the forest and different houses for different animals and houses for themselves to all live and thrive as one in nature. Like I said, it's not much, it might seem a bit intimidating, but yeah, the narratives that they can create themselves is pretty inspiring for me as an adult. It's like you're trying to inspire them, but then they flip it around to you and then they inspire you, which is Absolutely. pretty rewarding. And imagination is a really important um, allowing kids to just use their imagination, run along with them, whatever they're doing, because um, that imaginative play, uh, play when it's imaginative, they when it's that kind of make-believe game, kids tend to play those a lot longer than they will a really structured game. Mm-hmm. If you let them just play make-believe, let them pretend things, they'll do that a lot longer. And if you're doing that outdoors in a natural setting, then that's where they're generating those really key connections, connections, those memories with that place that, you know, when they're an adult, when they look back, they draw on those memories for strength. This is something that's in the, in the paper as well. You know, when you are trying to figure out what is it that you want to do with your life? What job do you want to go into? You know, you think back on things you've done before, experiences you've had, think about what is it that I like? So if we want our kids to be going into environmental protection, 
environmental education. They've got to care about the environment. Mm -hmm. You need to give them the chance to maybe go out and bruise a few knees and have some muddy hands. But yeah, it's those connections they make from an early age that'll hopefully inspire them to care about the natural world later on. Definitely for us anyway, is what we've both found. Yeah. I think that's um, an interesting thing about you building hedgehog dens and me building my little small mammal Mm -hmm. home in the compost heap is neither of us knew whether or not an animal would use it, but we could imagine that Mm -hmm. an animal is using it. Like I said, created full stories and full soap operas about the many hedgehog families that might live there. They may have never, my mom might have taken it down every night so I could build a new one the next day, but it's still that, yeah, I love the idea. Imagining what Mm -hmm. is going on out there in the world, because to some extent, I think that that can be, you know, building birdhouses and the bee hotels, That's those are really common and easy things to do. There's lots of easy recipes and like instructions Mm. that are out there, but the kind of a a little downside with them is that the kids can see if they're used or not and they Mm want to know. And if a bird is not using a birdhouse, then that can become disappointing or like the fishing trip, a bit boring (laughs) watching that birdhouse and no one's in it. Mm -hmm. But if it's, you know, if the kid is taking the lead because they can imagine something using this thing that they're creating, whatever it is, that in itself is valuable, whether or not the creation is actually practical. Because mm-hmm. when I think back on that cardboard box, first day it rained, that box probably crumpled to mush. <laughs> right. But at the time, I was convinced that something was going to move into that house. And I could just imagine that happening out there in the backyard. And that made that made my backyard that a little bit more of a special place because I could imagine, you know, mm-hmm. there's a family of something living in that box that I put there for them. Yeah, I think that it's quite nice as well. Like we obviously discussed that both our backgrounds and where we started could not be further apart. Canada, Ireland, different, completely different growing up, but we were both doing the same things. And now that's both, and now here we both are as science educators. It's kind of, yeah, I think, yeah, it's going to be lots and lots of people who that, who that idea is going to resonate with. And that's what we hope, that's what we want to happen. I'm not saying that I want every kid to turn out exactly like me, but more if we have more and more generations that care more and have those connections and have the, that empathy to the natural world, then wouldn't it be great to have a world filled with environmental educators? Absolutely. Um, so our time's sort of running out for this episode. So um, unfortunately. unfortunately, so in this episode, uh, we talked a bit about how important those early childhood experiences are. Just spending time outside and with an interested adult as well. Mm-hmm. So even if you're, you have kids or maybe you're a teacher, it's so, so crucial to be a positive role model and encouraging kids to go out and explore and use their imagination and encourage like learning through play in the outdoors because you could be putting in the building blocks there for a positive connection with the environment that'll stay with them all the way through life and into adulthood. It's so important. If you're interested in the paper, we'll put a link in the description of this uh, episode. And coming up in the next episode, we've decided to title it To Pick or Not to Pick. And it's going to be all Mm -hmm. about working with plants. Getting hands-on with plants in our environment and how... Yeah, getting kids more involved with them and what to do and maybe what not to do. This has been Knowing Nature with Victor and Annabeth. Thanks for listening and until next time, guys. Bye.